0: Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Karen Restoul. I'm a director of the Canadian Club Toronto, vice president at Crestview Strategy, and a member of Doki's First Nation. I'm pleased to be co-hosting today's event with my colleague and club president, Glenn Parkinson, who we will hear from later in the session. A warm welcome to those joining us online at CanadianClub.org. We are very grateful to Business Council of Canada and First Nations Major Projects Coalition who have partnered with us to present this very timely and important conversation. Enbridge, who has generously sponsored today's event, we appreciate your support. We are so pleased that Canadian Bankers Association is our season sponsor for the second year in a row, and Air Canada is also back as our official airline sponsor. Thank you for your ongoing support. But it doesn't end there. There's more, there's more support. We are proud to partner with Canada's Forest Trust Corporation in a significant environmental initiative, fostering sustainable forestry practices and connecting Canadians more closely with nature. Together, we are not only compensating for our event's carbon footprint today, but also nurturing a green legacy for future generations. Thank you CFT for planting a forest and preserving it in our honor. Canadian Club Toronto regularly invites young leaders to join our events and today we welcome some students and assistant professors from the University of Toronto's Indigenous Studies Program. Let's give them a warm welcome. As we mark the third National Day for Truth and Reconciliation on September 30th, we want to shine the spotlight on economic reconciliation and how Indigenous ownership contributes to nation rebuilding and strengthening our national economy. We encourage you all to reflect on how industry partnerships in all resource sectors can meaningfully support efforts to get this country on a stable path towards reconciliation. Before I welcome Cynthia to introduce our speakers, I want you all to be part of today's conversation. You should see on your tables question cards. They're there, have have a look. And I encourage you to use them to ask questions to our panel of experts. We will come to your table and collect them throughout the discussion uh, and forward them to the moderator uh, as as we move through. And for those of you joining remotely, please hit the Submit a question button on the right side of your screen and the question will be picked up by our team here. And with that, I welcome Cynthia Hansen, Executive Vice President at Enbridge and today's event sponsor to introduce our speakers.
1: Well, good afternoon. Thank you so much, Karen, and thanks to the Canadian Club for organizing this event. Uh, I thank you, too, to you, Wakaman, for your land acknowledgement, your greetings, your welcome, uh, your focus on community and your message. I really echo that. And I also want to recognize that Enbridge's assets cross many other treaty, non-treaty, and traditional Indigenous lands across North America. So I'm excited to be back in Toronto, and Embridge is truly honoured to sponsor this important conversation. Advancing Indigenous partnerships is something we're both passionate about and are committed to. So we've been on this journey for a long time, working with and learning from Indigenous communities to foster meaningful relationships. So standing here today, on the one-year anniversary for our landmark agreement with the Athabasca Indigenous Investments, representing 23 Indigenous communities in Alberta, this tells us a few things. So first, Indigenous communities want opportunities to create sustainable revenue sources. Two, these partnerships can happen. And three, we need to do a lot more. Advancing major projects is essential to growing the economy to benefit all Canadians, but the landscape has changed. It's not enough to consult with Indigenous groups. We need to work together to create mutually beneficial opportunities. Empowering Indigenous nations to become equity investors in projects with the private sector is material to the Canadian economy. But most do not have access to the capital without the support of loan guarantees from governments and other financing. To move infrastructure and really any project forward without, for Indigenous nations, they're having to get really creative. And these solutions are similar to what, you know, happened last year with us, and having the government of Alberta through the Alberta Indigenous Opportunities Corporation. Without that loan guarantee, the project, the investment would not have happened. Similar successful po- programs do exist in Ontario and Saskatchewan. So we know how to do this. And we really hope that other provinces and federally will progress in the same way. So to unlock indigenous access to capital, we know that the federal government should, in partnership with indigenous leaders and other experts, formulate, fund and operationalize a national approach to indigenous loans. And this would enable communities to choose what they want to invest in to achieve the vibrant communities that we would like to see across Canada. It's industry's responsibility to pursue these partnerships and to make more opportunities become a reality. We will need to work together. So again, I'd just like to say that I'm very excited to be here and and for Enbridge to host this wonderful conversation. So soon, we'll be joined on the stage by Chief Charlene Gale, Ricky Fontaine, and John Stackhouse for a discussion led by Mark Podlaski. But first, let me introduce my friend and our keynote speaker, the Executive Chair of Synovus Energy, Alex Porbe.
2: <clears throat> well, thanks very much, Cynthia. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't always feel very old, but then I realize that, Cynthia, uh, uh, you and I have been doing this for a long time. <laughs> Look, um, good afternoon, everybody, and, and thanks so much for the opportunity uh, to speak as part of today's event. As Cynthia said, uh, I'm here uh, on behalf of Synovus and the Pathways Alliance, and I really wanted to spend some time talking about the important work that both organizations are doing with Indigenous peoples. Um, Today's event seems especially fitting because it's uh, just about a year since Synovus was invited to be the first oil and gas company to join the First Nations major projects, coalitions, sustaining partners program. That's a mouthful. But, uh, and we're so appreciative of being given that opportunity. And through our partnership with the FNMPC, we're pursuing our shared vision for meaningful indigenous inclusion and economic recil- uh, reconciliation. And for those of you who aren't familiar with Synovus, uh, we are one of Canada's largest energy companies with headquarters in Calgary and operations uh, across North America and the uh, Asia-Pacific region. Many of our operations in Canada are located on or adjacent to the traditional lands of First Nations and Métis communities. Our proximity really did set the foundation for Synovus and neighboring nations to build lasting relationships. Um, You know, I think one of the things that I was most struck by when I you know, when I joined Synovus was Synovus' long track record of working collaboratively with Indigenous communities near operations. Uh, we still have a lot of work to do, but I believe we're very much on the right path. It's critical for us to work together to continuously improve how we do business and ensure those communities share in the benefits of our responsible resource development. And another thing that's incredibly important for our sector is it needs to develop a skilled workforce uh, to unlock the value of Canada's resources. And Indigenous uh, owned and operated businesses provide key goods and services uh, that our facilities rely on. These are really experienced local business vendors. They, they do it all for Synovus from you know, from hauling uh, to providing our, our health care uh uh, doing our camps, even uh, drilling uh, up at our at our facilities. And over the past fifteen years, I'm proud to say that Synovus has spent more than four billion dollars doing business with indigenous run communities and has indirectly further uh, contributed to the the uh, economies of those local communities. And as I said, like from from the day I got to Sonovas, I, I was really impressed how the company actively seeks out opportunities with Indigenous people, including community-owned businesses, community joint venture partnerships and individual entrepreneurs. And Synovus was actually one of the very first companies to incorporate Indigenous reconciliation into our ESG targets. And our current target uh, that we came out with a couple of years ago is to spend at least an additional 1.2 billion dollars with Indigenous businesses between 2019 and year-end 2025. And I'm really proud to say that we've already achieved that target uh, almost two and a half years uh, before uh, ahead of schedule. But that doesn't mean we're done. We're continuing to look for additional opportunities to expand the work we do with uh, Indigenous communities and companies. And importantly, I think the reason that we've really been successful in this area is that we have consciously integrated Indigenous business considerations throughout our company in all of our supply chain processes and we've made it a priority to work with local vendors wherever possible. So we're aspiring to take a leadership role and set an example on how to support economic reconciliation, inclusive opportunities, and equitable partnerships for Indigenous communities. One of the things I'm really proud about at Synovus Uh, is the unprecedented and meaningful action we've taken through our Indigenous housing initiatives. And I'll I'll go a little bit off-script here, but one of the first trips I did when I joined Synovus is I asked to go up uh, to the local Indigenous communities where we do business. I wanted to meet uh, the people in those communities. And and what I was incredibly struck by, um, you know, we're facing a housing crisis in this country as we speak. My observation was that the housing crisis in those indigenous communities was far worse than Canadians are seeing uh, day to day. Uh, and the communities, they are doing everything they can to provide housing. I was shocked at, at how little support uh, that they were getting from uh, federal or provincial governments. So, you know, we announced a project where um, we, would, uh, we would fund over a five-year period um, uh, I think it was a hundred, or, or uh, let me get this straight. It was it was ten million dollars a year over five years, with a goal of building uh, two hundred new homes in Indigenous communities. We've already funded uh, the construction of about a hundred of those homes, and in 2023 we increased our funding by 25 percent to cover increases in the total cost of construction materials over the last few years. Um, and I, you know, it's probably the worst-kept secret around, but I'm pretty sure we're going to continue that for the next five years when that when that ends up. Um, so that's just one way we're trying to create education and training opportunities for Indigenous people and help create a stronger local workforce. So as the world transitions to a lower-carbon future, we know people are going to continue to need access to secure and affordable energy. We think Canada is uniquely positioned to contribute To global energy security by becoming the preferred supplier of responsibly produced oil and natural gas in the world. As part of the work we're doing uh, to address our emissions, we've joined forces with Canada's largest oil sands players to work together with an ambition to achieve net zero by 2050. This group, known as the Pathways Alliance, is an example of how industry and government can work together to reduce emissions from oil sands operation. And the Pathways' proposed foundational carbon capture and storage project is just one way that we can achieve that ambition. And however, uh, as those in this room have said many times, the road to net zero goes through Indigenous communities. The Pathways project represents another opportunity to build on the decades-long track record our industry has of meaningful engagement with Indigenous leaders. And we started this process a couple of years ago by gathering Pathways leaders together with First Nations and Métis leaders in northeastern Alberta to explore ways to work collaboratively on the proposed carbon capture and storage project. And if the project proceeds, it will create employment and contracting opportunities, and we will work with Indigenous communities as we go through this process. Throughout both Synovus and Pathways, we can continue to deepen our involvement with Indigenous communities in Northern Alberta as we work together to make net zero ambitions a reality. In reflecting on my experience working with Indigenous communities and looking ahead to the discussion today, it is clear that economic reconciliation is one of the key ways the corporate world can support meaningful inclusion of Indigenous peoples in Canada. In talking with our partners at FNMPC, I know that access to competitive capital is central to improving Indigenous economic participation. I agree and would argue that Indigenous communities should have access to the most competitive capital in order to help provide them with a competitive advantage and help facilitate investment in projects that Indigenous communities themselves determine have merit. So I look forward to hearing from the panelists this afternoon and learning more about how we can all move forward together to continue to grow the Indigenous economy in Canada. Thanks very much.
3: and Alex, and thank you everyone for coming. My name is Mark Pudlasley, that's my given name. My ancestral name is Satcha, and I'm a member of the Intacatan First Nation in southern British Columbia. Today I am speaking to you as the Chief Sustainability Officer at the First Nations Major Projects Coalition, which is a coalition of 144 First Nations across the country, from coast to coast to coast, who are interested in exact topic. How do we as Indigenous people become owners co-partners, co-facilitators of Canada's economic development. So you've heard today from both Cynthia and Alex about successes that have been going on on the industry side. Today we're going to have a discussion primarily from an Indigenous perspective, of why, why this is important and why it's important to Canada. You've heard already that Indigenous people do not have access, easy access to capital, and as the country is moving towards a net-zero target challenge of 2035 and 2050 and beyond, Indigenous people want to be part of the solution, but capital is the issue. So I'm going to refer to our panelists that you have questions cards on your table. Please send them up. This is an opportunity to ask any question. Please do not be too Canadian and too polite. (laughs) As a moderator, it's always much easier to have a question that's based on some saltiness, okay? So (laughs) give it to us, please. I'm going to start with Chief Charlene Gale. You've heard today from our speakers about an Indigenous Loan Guarantee Program, but why is that needed?
4: So um, thank you for the question. And I just also wanna thank you all for being here because I heard that this event was sold out and it really, really warms my heart that all of you wanna be a part of this important discussion. So, and to answer your question, Mark, it's really important um, that we continue forward, realizing that any project that's built and that has already been built, is built on Indigenous lands. And as we look forward to um, creating more projects to meet our climate change initiatives, we're going to have to work together to ensure that Canada meets our targets. Um, you know, we talked about the Indian Act, and Truth and Reconciliation Day is coming on September 30th, and I really appreciate everybody that is wearing orange and honoring our survivors. It's so important. Um, If you haven't read the Truth and Reconciliation Report, read it because there's a lot of things that you'll learn about the Indian Act and how it has prevented us from being able to generate our own wealth and being major players in our own economies. We were very, very um, involved in our economies before first contact and we had our own trade routes and we still continue to um, do those kind of things today. I just um, wanna mention that with our CEO, we have a group of our members here that are working on projects that will um, contribute to uh, meeting our goals as Canadians. And I really encourage you after this event to really reach out and to speak to some of our members. So thank you.
3: So uh, Chief Gail, you mentioned the Indian Act. The Indian Act, uh, for those of you who do not know, governs the lives of First Nation citizens across this country. It has put us in the position of not owning our own lands. You'll hear that in the media, the indigenous lands, but they're all held in trust by the crown. So how does that prevent us from using that as collateral in these uh, discussions with business?
4: So when we talk about collateral and our lands, so I can't go to the bank and and get a loan like many of you can to, you know, get your businesses up and started, and that's the same thing that we want to do for our nations. If somebody in my community wants to get a mortgage and build their own house or build their business, they go to the bank, they get a mortgage, and they come to our government, and they ask for a loan guarantee. So we're not asking for anything different than what we're asking the banks or the governments to do. I think that's really important to to really understand that we do have money in our own communities, but we have a lot of social issues and things that we need to deal with to look after our own home. And we can't put that money up for risk. So I hope that kind of answers your
3: question. So that block on indigenous people raising affordable capital is the issue at heart here. Um, We are citizens of this country without the same rights as other citizens to access capital for an affordable rate. So you hear this often uh, discussed as an indigenous question, an indigenous problem, but I'm going to turn to John now. What are
5: this indigenous access to capital, why is that important for Canada going forward? What, what a great question. Uh, let, let me start first with a, a genuine thank you to all of you for being here. The, the, this is a great statement to the country of the interest in engagement in these issues from the, from the business community. So, Thank you for leaning into this. And secondly, genuine thanks to the, uh, to, to the coalition. This is Canada's best startup story, by the way. They started eight years ago, if I, if I have the, the facts roughly right, in a basement at, was it the Days Inn in Prince George, or something, something like that. And from there, you uh, follow the trajectory to their last major conference this spring that I was lucky to, be, uh, to, to attend, in Vancouver with 1,500 people uh, in, uh, in, in, in downtown Vancouver, and that's just the, the beginning, so way to go.
4: Yes, thank you, John, because it's the key reason why the First Nation Major Projects was formed is because we needed um, access to competitively priced capital, and so that's why a group of First Nations, of hereditary and elected chiefs, Formed the coalition, and we have grown tremendously in the last past six years. So thank you for bringing that up. Keep
5: keep, keep it going, and, and uh, we at RBC are r- really thrilled and honored to be uh, partners in any way we can. Uh, and just a bit of sales point: you're going to be uh, hosting that that conference here in Toronto in uh, in in April. So I hope everyone's uh, dialed uh, dialed into that. We're we're excited to be uh, a part of it because what a great moment to bring these uh, conversations together and amplify it. So, Mark, to your question, um, there's—I mean—it's it's a very uncertain time in the global economy, but there's a couple of extraordinary things going on that will continue uh, to to shape Canada. We hope positively uh, for the years to come, and it's it's really around ambition and action. So, l- l- let me start with action because the most exciting thing going on right now is actually in the United States, and it's through the Inflation Reduction Act where we are seeing the, the, the deployment of capital uh, at an extraordinary speed and scale. Uh, and our, our clients are excited about it. We're, we're excited to be uh, part of that. And that great American economic machine is really humming uh, with this in all sorts of areas that Canadians are really good at. Uh, so we're trying to catch up and there's lots of good incentives uh, out there, but we're gonna have to continue to, uh, to do, do more on the action front because um, almost unprecedented amounts of capital are at play right now. We did a research piece at, uh, at RBC that estimated Canada will need roughly $2 trillion. We called it the $2 trillion transition. So we're gonna need $2 trillion over the next 25 years. That's roughly $80 billion a year. That's not tax and spend money, that's investment capital uh, that's going to be required to get us to net zero. We can do this but it's going to require us to do things differently at, and with that speed that we're seeing in other parts of the world that we're maybe not quite accustomed uh, to now. And we got to get, up, uh, get on with that because the world, the climate is not waiting for us to uh, sort of have more, more conversations about, uh, about that. So that's the action side, lot, lot, lots of opportunity there. Then there's the ambition side. So we have really big ambitions as a society. Uh, to do things, not just by 2050, but we're committed to, to uh, very ambitious uh, interim targets by 2030. And we have to get on with all sorts of things if we're going to come uh, close to having a shot at, uh, at, at those goals. And to, to be more specific, um, Canada has to win at a whole bunch of things, but there are three things we really have to win at. And that is uh, clean electricity, uh, abatement technology, and um, critical minerals we can lead the world in all three of those. And guess what is the common thread between all three? It's indigenous capital. So critical minerals, whether it's in uh, Northern Ontario or elsewhere in, 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 in the country. By our uh, study, roughly 50 to 60% of the viable critical mineral projects in this country are on indigenous territory. So let's get on, uh, let's get on with that abatement technologies. We heard from Alex and there's all sorts of other things going on in the country that are really exciting that we can lead the world in. That's going to Im- involve, that's gonna require indigenous equity. It's not just uh, a say, it's a say and, uh, and, sh- and share as, as you, Chief Gale have often, uh, of, of, often said. Um, so how do we figure out how to move that capital at speed uh, t- to indigenous partners to, to ensure that they are rightful owners uh, in 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 these uh, great 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 projects, and just to wrap up, the the point we're not going to get to net zero, Alex, as you said, without reconciliation. Our uh, line that we like to, to use is no reconciliation, no net zero. It's that simple. So here's a good uh, a, a good step forward on uh, on the on, on the reconciliation path. John has pointed out this question about Indigenous lands, Indigenous say,
3: Indigenous investment, and a large driver of, this, of that in this country is UNDRIP, the United Nations Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous People, which states in there the concept of free prior informed consent. Without consent, as you pointed out, there will not be an approval. If there's no approval, then the question is, how will we meet a national target of critical minerals and clean energy? So that's the, the crux of where we're at as an economy. And going forward, this has become a crisis in the sense that Indigenous people without access to capital cannot co-invest and participate in the infrastructure that we require as a planet. So that's where we're at. So I'm going to go back to you, Chief Gail, and then over to you, Ricky. But uh, First Nations are contributing value to these projects by being hosts. So the question for you is, why is a fair return on investment important to compensate for that consent?
4: Okay, so I think far too long we've been left behind when industrial development comes to our territories. And I think free prior informed consent is really important and that First Nations have an opportunity to design and meaningfully participate as equity owners in these projects going forth. I talked about our responsibilities to our community and how we really wanna raise the living standards of our own uh, members within our own nations. We have a lot to um, build in our own communities. But when I think about, you know, these projects, they're living in our communities for 50 to 100 years. And there needs to be, um, you know, some inclusion of us being able to make our own source revenue so that we can look after the seven generations ahead. When government, or sorry, when uh, industry gets involved in investing in these projects, you know, they look at the, the risk. And if it's not going to, you know, make profits, then, you know, they don't build them. And it's the same thing when people come to our communities, we want to be meaningfully consulted. We um, believe in free prior, informed consent, it's so important. And we also want to see that um, our nations are able to um, really look at a project and look at the effects on the land. So there's that responsibility of environmental um, stewardship but economic prosperity that goes in line that we have to balance. And so when I when I think about um, um, some of the work that we do at the coalition, like the spirit of the land, these are really meaningful um, processes that we work with our members on. And I think about um, you know the nations that have hosted projects for decades, and then you know they're still living in in conditions below the poverty line, and we really need to change that. Um, We talked about uh, truth and reconciliation on September 30th, and we all have a responsibility in this room to be a part of this conversation. We're all in different rooms of influence, and I really look forward to the conversation after this because we all have a responsibility to ensure that we're all involved meaningfully as we go ahead.
3: I thank you for the questions. Please, if you have any more, send them up. I do regret asking for un-Canadian salty questions at this point because some of these are really tough. <laughs> so before we get to these, Ricky, uh, what projects are there in Quebec and, and, and your First Nation that require capital to move forward in an energy transition?
6: Interestingly enough, if you don't know it, we're in the last phase of the, of the Quebec consultations on clean energy. So it started in May with an expert panel and the numbers that have been put on table are the following. Quebec, to sustain its uh, long-term development, needs 25 terawatt hour or more over the next 20 years. In order to do that, they need to add 12,000 megawatts of wind energy. They have to optimize all the large assets that Hydro-Quebec has. They have to go into biofuels and uh, save energy and ask people to save energy. About five years ago, we had a wind energy project, 200 megawatts that uh, we were able to secure a partner, and Quebec had no energy. It had surpluses for the next 40 years. We knew that it wasn't the case. The minute that Quebec signed the agreement with New York, it was over. Surpluses disappeared. Nowadays, they need First Nations involvement. Nowadays, they need, to need us as partners. However, what took place over the last 20 years, the only equity partnerships that we had when was, when, was when Hydro-Québec decided that they left the private sector, took over. It was true for the small hydro, where we took a partnership position, small, uh, sometimes a little bit more, but the private sector drove that uh, sector. With the wind energy, it was even more. There were small participation in large projects, and only when uh, the, the, the Mi'kmaq decided to go on and negotiate their f- agreement that Quebec came and passed a, a law at the National Assembly to allow them to develop the first, uh, wind energy project. Now, they've been approved for an, an expansion. As I mentioned, now that they know that surpluses aren't there, they need a lot more indigenous participation. What is contrary to what Hydro-Quebec has been used to do? They were signing IBAs. We sign IBAs with Hydro-Quebec, but nowadays we're, discussi- we're discussing options on our uh, wind energy project, it's a 200 megawatts, 36 turbines that, will be, uh, that are, we're building right now. We are already talking about an expansion, but we are already talking about more expansions of that uh, wind, uh, uh, wind energy project. There are other communities who have jumped in the loop as well to uh, table some projects with private, uh, private investors. However, One of the projects that was announced about on September 12 involved uh, a 300 megawatt project. The same day it was announced that there will be uh, a submission for 300 megawatt, the municipality passed a resolution by which they were able to raise 166 million debt to support their their part of the equity. It's not taking place at the community level. It's not taking place at the national level. Each and every project has to, it's a hurdle race to find the capital needed to have a real say at the table. I would say that in Quebec, the private sector have found ways to involve us a lot more than the Quebec government to date. But now we're discussing options because they need us. They're tired of having litigation with us, Uh, If you're looking at the uh, quarterly reports for Hydro-Québec, you always see the name of Washat bakmanyotinam The list of litigation that we have with Hydro-Québec is very long, and we won't stop as long as they're not solving the past. We'll have to address the past in order to uh, straighten the future, and that's exactly what is going on. It's going on in most of the regions of Quebec. I would say that Wind energy has been a key driver for most of the communities, and it's still a driver. But the private sector did a lot better, even before we are talking about economic reconciliation. So we went from administrative agreement to uh, IBAs, and we signed IBAs with mining companies. And the private sector, the, industry, uh, the uh, iron ore industry, is looking at at, greening, uh, at green steel, so they want to, us to be involved in making sure that the steel that they will produce with iron is at the top of the market, and we, they offered us a role into uh, those projects. So right now we're discussing with Hydro-Quebec, the Quebec government, and most of the industries that wants to have green steel. That's our area, but you know, you may have 12 projects, 30 projects, but we're still a community of 5,500 people, 90% people living on the reserve, and having a budget of $150 million a year. That's not enough to, uh, to be able to really participate in each and every of those projects. So we'll need access to capital because it's a, a big hurdle to go through if we want to be able to consider more than one project. And there's plenty that are available.
3: So, Ricky, you've done a good uh, outline of the opportunities, terawatts of energy and how that drives other industry and how that drives green steel. And that's just in one province, never mind what was happening around the rest of the country. So back to you, John. So how would a national Indigenous loan guarantee program that allowed access to capital for Indigenous people to participate, thus
5: free up these uh, projects, how would that impact the national economy? Uh, it impacted very positively, and, and this is a great concept, by the, by, by the way, so if you're not familiar with it, uh, please engage with the coalition because they've got great uh, background materials on it. Uh, we've been fortunate to work with uh, clients uh, who uh, have been engaged with provincial uh, backstops in Ontario and Alberta uh, particularly, and seeing through a number of, uh, of, 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 of projects the payoff for uh, Indigenous communities. The cost of capital is gonna vary, of course, uh, depending on market conditions, the project, and, and uh, the, 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 the partners involved. But our team um, in Capital Markets that does this work estimates that there's generally a 100 to 300 basis point savings for uh, an indigenous community. That's <laughs> a lot of money. Uh, go back to that $2 trillion transition I uh, talked about. A lot of that is going to be indigenous equity. Uh, so this could mean savings uh, that you know, o- over time will amount, uh, will, will, will total into the billions of dollars uh, for indigenous communities that they would otherwise be paying uh, to lenders because there isn't that, that national backstop. So that's, you know, and we've joined forces in conversations trying to help the federal government see the enormous opportunity as well as the equity, and I'm not talking about shareholder equity, it's the, 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 the true equity of this kind of approach, because to look at this another way, that is a 300 basis point tax on Indigenous communities, simply because they do not have the same uh, balance sheet and credit rating as we collectively do as a nation doesn't really make sense given, uh, given our history. How do we share that credit rating effectively so that the way we're able to borrow money on global markets, we being sort of the, the, the people of Canada, uh, is uh, afforded to indigenous communities and then they can uh, uh, accelerate things that then has an extra dividend for the economy more broadly because that's gonna draw in all sorts of capital which we hear from institutional investors as well as others who want to be part of this kind of financing structure and all those projects uh, that are going to help us get to, uh, get to net zero.
3: Uh, Chief Gail, um, this is a softball question. How do we bring multiple indigenous groups together on linear projects in Canada?
4: <laughs> so I think uh, if you guys know the First Nation Major Projects Coalition, then you know that we're we have the ability to do that. And First Nations know that by coming together, we're stronger. And uh, we've seen some really great projects that you know they're working on, whether it's a pipeline, a transmission line. Um, but I think most importantly, it's really important when industry wants to come develop in our communities is that they come see us at day one so that we can design those projects together in collaboration. We know our values on the land, we know where projects can be built and where they can't be built. Um, but I also think like, just tying back to the conversation here and the, the need for access to capital is so important. And you know, a federal loan guarantee program is so needed because we have so many projects that we're working with our members that if we don't get that finance, financing opportunity, um, it's going to create many more challenges for everybody and the projects won't be built and we won't reach our goals. So um, I talked about the the members that are here with us today, and I really encourage you, talk to them about the challenges. Let's talk about the solutions. We have to work together. And if we do get a federal loan guarantee program, it has to be sector agnostic. You can't come in and say, um, well, we're not going to finance that project, doesn't meet our mandate. That doesn't work for First Nations. The United Nations Declaration has been put enacted in law by the federal government so that we can self-determine. We can decide when we wanna be involved and when we don't wanna be involved. And I think that's really important that going forward, that government stops telling us what we can and what we can't do and allows us the freedom to decide for ourselves going forward.
3: So question to you, Ricky, in your opinion, if there was a national loan guarantee program, what characteristics would your First Nation and nations in Quebec want to see?
6: First of all, uh, national in scope, uh, First Nations driven, First Nation led, Aborigine, uh driven and led, I would say, because in Quebec we have the Inuit that have their specific framework. I would say uh, be able to work in Quebec with the solitude of Quebec, major solitudes because we have the Inuit, the modern treaty with the Cree, and if you don't know the Cree, uh, they're working on La Grande Alliance, which is an incredible infrastructure uh, project. Go online and look at what's going on there. They signed a modern treaty that have been amended 24 times. I would like the other First Nations to be able to do that. So it's an incredible infrastructure program with 540 kilometers of railway to be built over the next 30 years. Increase in highways, transportation, energy. It's just incredible. But they're doing this stuff because they signed their comprehensive land claim agreement and they're deciding what's good for them. The other solitudes are all the other First Nations that are stuck with the Indian Act and all the impediments. So making sure that an organization is able to understand what's going on, the specifics about Quebec, the French language issue, because most of the First Nations in Quebec has French as the second language, and it's not English as the first. It is always the vernacular language as first. Um, being able to support, because most of the communities are, need support. We're talking about remote communities, remote areas that have not been exposed to major project other than uh, having to sustain the damages of those projects. So it needs to have a component of helping them making decisions, and an organization that would certainly be able to live by uh, UNDRIP and free and prior informed consent. And that's uh, the key elements. With respect to uh, the key features, um, the challenge is up there. In, in Alberta, they came up with one billion in loan guarantee. In Ontario, they came up with one billion in loan guarantee. What can Canada do about it? In Quebec, we're trying to find ways to, uh, and new tools, because we need new tools to address some of the issues. Uh, we found that the framework that is currently in place is not meeting uh, the, the needs of the First Nations in Quebec. So. We have to do better, uh, whether it's uh, a minimum of 20 millions up to 250 millions like uh, in Alberta, I don't know. Uh, there's, some, there's some thinking to go around those. The length of the uh, guarantee uh, has to be discussed. But I would say at the delivery level, there should be some capacity building built in that. It's not only the financial trans- transaction it's also the knowledge transfer that has to take place. And with a governance structure that see in some of the uh, Inu communities, elections still every two years, uh, you can understand that a project that has a timeline of about 12 years could see six chiefs. So uh, big changes in how to address those issues. And with respect to having unity, uh, we told Quebec that there should be, a, the right hand should talk to the left hand because when they're starting requests for proposal at the same time as nations are trying to get together to have a common approach, that's, that's pretty bad. Uh, everybody's fighting for themselves, and that's a, result, a direct result of starting a series of requests for proposal at any given time.
3: So um, I'm watching the time here. John, I, a quick question to you is that uh, you've heard this from, obviously, from an indigenous perspective, wanting to become part of the uh, national infrastructure, wanting to be uh, co-investors in, in, in projects that will build not only our communities, but the national economy. Um, very briefly, can you tell us what, how, what is industry doing now? How can industry help? How can governments help? Where, where do we go from here?
5: Yeah, well, you, you, you've heard some great illustrations, and Ricky just, uh, articulated uh, with great passion. Um, I love those uh, love those stories. But we're seeing, you know, here in Ontario, what Hydro One is doing uh, in terms of their 50-50 uh, program. So essentially, uh, at, at, at any Indigenous community through which transmission lines go has an opportunity to buy fifty percent of uh, of that. That's uh, that's working really, really well. Uh, we're seeing uh, great uh, opportunities. Cynthia talked in the. Uh, in, Introduction about, uh, about Enbridge's pro- project, a great model. So, the private sector working with indigenous communities is, is already kind of modeling this out very well, and the provinces have been uh, keen to uh, kind of giddy up and uh, help, help even more. So, now we're all waiting for, for Ottawa to kind of make that final commitment that we think will create something that is um, fairly low risk for, for the country and the unlock for, of, of capital for Indigenous communities, but for all of our benefit, is, uh, is, 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 is pretty enormous. Yeah.
3: One of the questions that's come in is how can we help? This is industry, I presume. So we would encourage you, as Indigenous people on the stage, write the Minister of Finance, tell them that this <laughs> is important for the country. It is not an Indigenous question anymore, it's a national economy competitiveness issue. And that will go a long way. Uh, we've been in discussions quite months actually, years on this whole question with the federal government and that shifting of the attitude towards what John pointed out that this is important for our economy, it's no longer just an indigenous question, is front and center. I'm going to wrap this because all of you have got to get back to work. It's time to end this. I want to thank you for coming. I would like to point out if you, the information. Some of these questions we will get to if you want to write us at the coalition. But if you go to fnmpc.ca, which is our website, you'll see all the reference material that you've heard about talk today. You'll see reports. The, there's videos of the conference. Our annual conference in Toronto in next year, April 22nd, 23rd at the Sheraton, just up the road. We are expecting over 2,000 people. Our patron sponsor is RBC and we will be addressing these questions and more in terms of the energy transition, access to capital, and most importantly, how does this benefit all Canadians?
7: Thank you, and Mark, it looks like you've got 50 or 60 more questions, so <laughs> we could, I really wish we could go on because that was a terrific discussion, and you know, my name's Glenn Parkinson, I'm president of Canadian Club Toronto, and I'm here just to say very briefly thank you to to everybody. Um, First to Karen, my fellow director, for running us through today in such a lovely way and to um, Wakuman for such a lovely opening. It was touching and beautiful. Thank you for that. Um, Ricky, Chief Gail, and John, I mean, I really, uh, on behalf of the club, wanna thank you for your perspectives and what was, for me, a real education on the importance of finance and just what a role it's gonna play in unlocking you know, authentic and meaningful partnerships, but allowing communities to contribute and benefit in a, in a more meaningful way. And our country needs it. Like, I think that was the point that couldn't have been made more clear. This is in everybody's best interest as we march towards net zero, and I really took away a lot from the discussion. So thank you so much, and we wish you all the best with the First Nations Major Projects Coalition. And, and Mark, thank, salt or no salt, I think is more salt than, than, than less, um, thank you for a tremendous job, as always. Um, before we close, a quick snapshot of a few more events that we've got coming up. Next Thursday, October 5th, we have a panel discussion focused on decarbonization and clean aerospace with representatives from Aero, Airbus, Air Canada, and Greater Toronto Airport Authority. And then on Wednesday, October 11th, Premier of Prince Edward Island, the Honourable Dennis King, will be at our podium. Please visit our website on canadianclub.org for more information. Let me conclude by thanking our AV partner, VVC Live, for supporting our program today, and one more thank you to Enbridge for generously sponsoring today's event. Members and guests, thanks for being with us, and we hope to see you again soon. Have a great afternoon.